In the world of recruiting, some people have seen it all. They built recruiting teams from the ground up, hired hundreds of people in the best companies in the world, developed their expertise year after year. I'm Robin Choi, and I'm on a mission to collect their learnings. These are their stories. Hello, everyone. Hello, Chris. Robin, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to the Modern Recruiter Podcast. And thanks a lot. So we met after I wrote that post on LinkedIn and called for people who created agencies to share their stories with as much transparency as possible. We didn't meet before, but we met following that post. And then we had that preparation call together. And I really liked how willing you were to share about the inside of Artemis, the company that you created. And that's what we're going to cover today. So we're going to try and deconstruct the company, look at the numbers, and it will be interesting for anyone working in recruiting to get like ballpark ideas of numbers and pass-through rates and uh, figures, like everything about the company itself. And also you have pretty strong stances about the company. So I'd be curious to understand how you got to create the company in the first place, those stances, especially one about quality over quantity. How did you manage to not only have this stance, this opinion, but also execute on this. So we're going to be covering everything today. Maybe can you start with a quick introduction of yourself and Artemis? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for everything you do on LinkedIn. You've got an incredible voice. So if anyone here in this isn't following you, they definitely should. So I'll give you kind of a, how I got into the industry, right? I think it happens accidentally often. So getting out of college, I knew I wanted to be in sales. A friend of mine had worked at a company at the time at a top sales training program. One of those programs, I had left California moved to Northern Georgia, you circle three states, you end up in a territory. So I ended up in Las Vegas. And, you know, again, that that was a relationship that led to that. I think everything in this business and business overall, it's all about relationships. So I was in Vegas, great job, great starter job. Uh, a friend of mine from college, a roommate of mine called me and told me about this recruiting opportunity. And this was uh, late 2004. And the mortgage industry was cranking. So my first recruiting job was an internal recruiter in mortgage industry. Now, in the mortgage industry at the time, internal recruiters can do very, very well. So I never really worked at a big company, but the leader of that department had this headhunting approach. So I never learned kind of recruiting versus headhunting, but taking that approach, did that for a few years, thankfully left before the mortgage crisis. And I went to a, a small boutique IT staffing firm to start the permanent placement division. Had a good run there. Thought I figured out the real world. Didn't know, really know much about recessions, but fast forward, you know, 2008-ish, uh, 80% of our business at the time was with one very large client, um, had a team, was cranking along, and boom, it was over, hiring freeze. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but it meant pretty much game over. So it was an inflection point for me. I had moved to Orange County, wasn't sure I wanted to stay here. A lot of my friends were selling software, medical device, so maybe I'll go do that. And a couple conversations with different mentors, advisors, and one in particular, this executive coach I've worked with since 2006, I was going on a tangent about the industry and what I didn't like. And he asked me a question. He said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And I literally hadn't thought of this until he said that. And I, I said, well, I guess I'd do what I'm doing, but it'd be relationship-based. I don't love that I can do all this work and I don't you know, get to enjoy the people or the clients don't get back to you, things of that nature. So that's where the idea came from. I was at a point in life where, hey, why not? I guess I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial. So we started the firm, I guess, incorporated late 2009, but really didn't do any business till mid-2010. Um, I wasn't going to snake clients from my old boss or anything. Who's we at that point? My original business partner, uh, Joe, still a really good friend of mine today. You know, just ultimately different visions as we, we got going. 
So we sat down and we were thinking of names. His last name, my last name didn't make a lot of sense. And we started Googling, hey, we're headhunters. What headhunting? And Artemis came up. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. So that's where the name came from. Now, unfortunately, there's also four or five different firms with the same name. NASA's programs, now Artemis, there's wine, there's all kinds of companies with the name. But that's where it came from originally. So fast forwarding a, a decade or so, how we're structured today, and I'm happy to get into the the good and the bad of being a business owner in our world. But today we rebranded last year. So we've got three divisions in a joint venture right now. So we have Artemis Technologies, which focuses on contract IT positions, but does do what I refer to as positional perm placement. So in IT, you can move from industry to industry as an example. Then we have Artemis Professionals, which is focused on accounting and finance contract and positional perm placement for accounting and finance. And then we have a joint venture, Artemis United, that is a certified disabled veteran business enterprise. We set that up. A friend of mine, we were just talking about military folks transitioning to the private sector and what a terrible job this country does. How can we help? So we set that up with the intention of hiring only veterans internally to go after the state, the government, folks that, that value the diversity spend with DVBs, but the execution would happen with our other divisions. And then the fourth one is, is Artemis Search. So that's our, our headhunting division, which is kind of where I grew up in the business. So that's very much passive candidate target niche role search. Um, and that's where I spend the majority of my time today. So total overall right now, we're about 42 employees, including back office folks. So we're a little bit more employee headcount versus, you know, where the revenue should be per employee headcount, but we have the right team and most importantly, the right culture in place. So we're pretty bullish on the future, despite uh, the challenges in the market right now. We're going to talk about this as well. You mentioned that you're a bit more in terms of team than what the revenue would put you. Can you share what is your revenue today and why you say it's more than where you should be? Like the kind of ballpark numbers that you have where a team of 10 people should be that amount of revenue and a team of 40 people should be doing that amount of revenue. Yeah, I think I'll start there with, you know, it's ironic that I think the hardest thing to do in our industry leaders, and we'll all probably agree for the most part, is hiring for ourselves. And how does that make any sense? Like we do it for a living, but we can't do it for ourselves. So there's a lot of reasons why there. And, and I definitely made a lot of mistakes there. And kind of a second in, inflection point in my career was after some legal issues with uh, former business partners. I, uh, you know, sat in the room and said, Hey, I got a good book of business. I could sit at home, make a bunch of money, but ultimately that wasn't going to make me happy. And life's all about being happy. Right. So one of those things was what role do I want to play? I love coaching. I love strategic strategy and I like client development. Right. If I'm doing anything else, it's probably not creating a lot of value. So one of the, the big takeaways was I'm going to treat search like I would for a client. So over the last couple of years, we've been able to build an absolutely phenomenal team where culture's hitting on all cylinders and for us, it's it's all about our purpose, which is to build a happy workforce, starting with ours. And I think sometimes money gets put first. So when, when, when I think about revenue, it's great to put together a five-year plan. It's all about a number. I believe if we solve for a feeling and you hit that feeling, that number will actually be bigger than if you put a number to it. But if I do put a number to it right now, we're about 60% perm business across the divisions, 40% contract goal is eventually to be 85% revenue contract because, you know, the gross profit is essentially what a perm search is, which the revenue is gross profit, right? So that's where we want to get to. Right now, this year, we'll probably be 12 to 15, but the goal is ultimately hit that feeling and that feeling should land us around $100 million in eight or so years from now. All right, cool. Okay, so 12 to 15 million for 40 people. So the ballpark would be about 400 per person. 
that would be the kind of ballpark that you you would have in mind? Yeah, that would include the back office type folks if you're talking about individual deaths, right? So my thought there is I'd rather have, you know, 10 people doing a million dollars a piece than 20 people doing 500. So how do we empower them, mm -hmm. make the mundane activities involved in our business nowadays, remove that from their desk, give them the support to produce more and i.e. be happier, right? Yeah. Um, that's kind of part of our overall arching strategy, I guess you'd say. Yeah, and that's a very good and difficult point in that the industry is that you get a lot of diminishing returns. It's easy, you start, and then you're super profitable. And then you're like, okay, I'm just going to hire three people and do the same work as I do, and I'm just going to scale like this. And then the second person is just not as much profitable, but still very profitable. And then the more people you add on, and then you see it's a, there's a lot of diminishing returns. So how do you fix this? That's a question that not a lot of companies have figured. There's not a lot of um, very big um, executive search agencies, for instance. And even the biggest, they're usually a myriad of smaller agencies. So you can get it. It's difficult to scale. So good point on this. People listen to us in Europe as well and have different numbers in mind. So it's not easy to just compare like those 400, 500 per people to other countries. In terms of salary multiple, do you have a ballpark, like a person should bring in four or five times their revenue? What's the, how do you think about it? Yeah, I, I look at, you know, the outcomes and the client satisfaction, but obviously a cost per desk factors into that. And then you have economies of scale. So depending on your size and your office space, what is the cost per desk? So of course you want that cost per desk to be covered. The rig question is, depending on the role, how much time does that person have to cover that cost per desk? Because that's really what would slow down growth, right? You can get someone that goes after a market that you're really bullish on, but it might take a year and a half to break into, and they're a high cost person. That may slow you down from hiring two or three others. So really, I mean, ideally, I'm a big fan, and who am I to judge the big firms, but I want people to have unlimited income potential and give them support to do so. Where right now, as I'm sure you're aware in this environment, a lot of the really big firms who's getting let go, it's people that put in so much work. They're now a first line, second line, third line manager, not carrying a bag. Those are the people that are getting let go right now. My attitude's the opposite. Those are the people that have earned it. Those are the people that you hold on to no matter what and give them that, that opportunity to continue. Would you say that that's happening in staffing companies as well or internal teams? Uh, staffing. Okay. Internal, I'm sure, is next because if you look at like stats from the, the dot-com boom, I wasn't around yet, but the Great Recession, you know, depending on who you talk to, 25 to 50% of the business goes away. I was so scared coming out of the last recession or I would have grown a lot faster. But, you know, there is going to be this sweet spot, whatever this economic uncertainty that we're in, where maybe there's less bureaucracy internally at the company, easier avenue to get the hiring manager relationship. A lot of the competition's gone away because they gave up or just left and then it's game on because when companies come back to hiring like they were say a year and a half, two years ago, if you're doing the right business and you're focused on the relationships right now, that's probably one of my biggest lessons from the last recession, not that we're in one right now, but you know, I was young and it was, I'd call clients and go, hey, let's go to lunch. And they'd say, I have no business. They'd say, I don't care. And then guess who called me a year and a half later when yeah. things picked back up, those exact clients. Yeah, that's the right time to, um, to go at it. Okay. And if we really had to put a kind of multiple on the numbers, like those 500K in Europe where a recruiter would be paid like 50K per year, we'll say how much would that convert into like, what's the kind of uh, mindset that you have around salary multiples and how much revenue a person should bring in? 
I think as people get going the first year or two, if you can show a track to where they're covering 120 to 150% of their cost per desk, all blended costs per desk, including back office costs, that's about right. But really, you'd like to see that person two, three, 400% of their cost per desk. That means they're probably pretty happy. That means we've done right by them. We've set them up for success. We give them the tools and the processes and procedures. In our culture, we also give a lot of autonomy, right? So that's always a sticking point to give a lot of autonomy. You have to hire the right people and you have to have the right KPI so they can outline, okay, I'm doing these activities because often, especially in perm, it's, you don't really know the outcome and people always get caught in this like, oh, I got this great pipeline. I'm going to bill this much. And then inevitably a counter offer happens, this happens mm-hmm. and your foot comes off the gas. But if you look at more of the front end numbers, you can diagnose it and go, okay, here's where I will be if I just focus on these activities, not focus on where's my billing going to be at the end of the quarter, but focus on this activity that you can take apart and go, okay, if I do this, this will equal this in this amount of time. So I'm big into the data. We try to do this at some point with Iris. So it, it's put a number on every activity, like a cold email would be 20 bucks. Because if you do a thousand cold emails, and then in the end, you'll get a client, they'll pay you 20,000 or so, something like this. So the numbers are probably off. But did you try to put numbers on the activities and try to separate the inputs from the outputs, as you mentioned, because you have control on the inputs, not always the outputs. Yeah, absolutely. We don't do necessarily a number generated to those activities, but we do do as a point system. And then we just reverse engineers what those points are worth. So like in our search division, if you talk to eight people a day, you should get one submittal out of that. But depending on that person's skill set, maybe they talk to five to get one submittal, right? So if you look at that and we reverse engineer it in that idea right there. So if the target's eight new calls a day, which is low, but there's challenges getting people live nowadays. So if it's an eight to one ratio, then the pre-screen or connect is worth one point and the submittals worth eight points. So that's how we kind of put it together. And we use that data to go like a doctor views a patient if you're diagnosing something. So this business, every time you take a step four, like when you start trying to close your own deal, you're going to lose more than if someone else does it for you, right? I'm a big believer because that's how I learned the business, failing, just being kind of gritty and going, okay, how do I figure this out? How do I get around this? But everyone's book's going to be different. Sales is so much harder to track what's going to make someone successful versus a recruiter type role, in my opinion, because some people might have a nice referral network and they literally don't pick up the phone, but they have more in their pipeline than someone that's just cold calling or cold emailing all day long. So there's so many different approaches. That one's a little bit more challenging. But if you put the focus in on, am I building quality relationships? Inevitably, then it'll turn into the billing that you want it to be. Nice. And that's also one of the big motivation problems that I feel in recruiting could explain. So I'd be curious to, to know how you explain the difficulty of agencies to hire for themselves. I feel like there is indeed a lot of uh, churn. There is burnout in the industry as well. Part of it is I feel like I do all these activities and at the end of the day, it's not necessarily the activities that pay. Like I will spend a lot of time on one specific role and in the end, they won't close with us. And the opposite. This role that I haven't really focused on, they'll just hire the one person that I shortlisted for them. So it can feel a bit unfair and making hires has a huge impact on your personal revenue as well as an employee. So it can feel a bit unfair. And I like that point system that kind of puts, of course, there's going to be some luck involved, but if you're invested and committed to all your searches, then in the end, if you like, if you do, uh, as you say, eight connected calls per day, of course, one of these calls will bring 100% of revenue on that role. 
So ideally you could just do one, recall the right person. But in reality, we knew that you need to do eight per day so that you connect enough and then you actually increase your kind of luck surface. So obviously there's always going to be luck, but the more connections you have, the more relationships, the more luck as well. Yeah. I think for me, it's early on in my career, it was always someone else pointing the finger and, you know, being a bit of a victim if you'd lose a deal. But the reality was looking back, the deals I would get upset about were deals I didn't put my best foot forward. I didn't check all the boxes in our process. You really can't get upset if you check all the boxes and you put your best foot forward. It's just part of the business, right? And what did you learn from that? If you learn something from that, that you can use for the next deal, like here's an example. Oh, I got to, you get to the offer stage after 15 interviews and they go, oh, I just got to run it by my spouse. That's called the kiss to death usually, right? Because the spouse wasn't involved in the interview process and they're going, wait, you have a really good job. This is like passive candidate search. Why are we going to move our life? What's going on? So I've gotten to the point where I'll even sometimes talk to the spouse because for me, it's not, let's get this deal done. It's really building a brand with that particular client. And the only way I'm going to do that is that person that we place is happy and doing well three or five years from now. And we've put the right person in place we know is going to be sticky in there. It's not about the deal now. It's about the deal you can get from them three and five years or 10 years down the road. That reminds me of a great podcast episode we did with uh, Jose Guardado about closing and about how important it is to start the closing from the first interaction and map all the people involved in the decision and the spouse is one. Like you don't want to hear about this at the final stage and the offer stage. Yep. Let's say there's 20 parts in a permanent placement deal. And when you get going, you're doing the opener, you're trying to get there. Classic examples, when you're new to this business, you're like, oh, it was an amazing day. Three people are going to send me their resume. Guess what happens? None of them do. Then you learn how to get those three people to send you the resume, maybe right there on the phone while you're talking to them. Where I grew up, it was like they had to go to the attic, get a floppy disk, download the resume. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little bit different now, but it's an evolution, right? And it's really the attitude of the person, the culture. And for us, we don't want to necessarily have managers. We want coaches. But we also need people that are willing to get coached and will come over and go, hey, you mentioned this was normal. How do I get around that? What do I do next time? And then they start implementing that game and then it becomes easier and you can take more and more on. Yeah, I like that. And also like how you're very focused on numbers and at the same time focused on quality. And like numbers don't have to equal quantity. You have the numbers as a map. So you know if you're going in the right direction, kind of you check the mileage on your car and you check that at the half the trip, then you're half the mileage, you're good. So you're good to go to the end of the trip. It's the same here. Doesn't mean that it's just about increasing the numbers. If we dive down a bit in the numbers, so you mentioned connected calls, so that would be eight per day. Can you share like what's the typical pipeline looks like with the pass-through rates at every stage? So you call eight people, you get what one submission to the client. Is that what you have in mind? Yeah. So we'll talk about our search division in particular, the headhunting, mm -hmm. right? Again, a lot of people throughout the same vernacular industry, you know, staffing, search, uh, headhunting, uh, you know, contract placement, consulting, it, it all gets bundled in a box. I view them as completely separate, but there's different approaches in all those. But for me, I'm really passionate about the difference between headhunting and recruiting. Headhunting is going to be quality over quantity. So most of the numbers I'll probably say are going to be lower than most of the people in the industry even doing perm placement. But, you know, you run into people all the time. How many searches do you carry? Oh, 25 or 30. How many do you close? One or two. Wouldn't you rather work on three to close two? That, that's kind of the attitude. So 
not perfect. Again, depends on the person, but we use this data to be able to go, okay, where are these coaching opportunities to get them to the next level and create a predictable desk, right? That's what I think everyone wants because everyone's had a blowed out month or blowed out quarter and then it can go away. How do you keep that as consistent as possible? So you're not constantly doing this. So for me, secret sauce and perm placement with headhunting, it, it's all about the right amount of submittals in the right amount of time that will get and take the job. So, you know, you mentioned what I call the one and done. Oh, I got the perfect candidate. You said one K. That's probably not going to move the process along. Can it? Sure. Is it more work to go get four other cans? Absolutely. But you're protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. So numbers we look at, like you said, that starting with calls, right? A lot of firms will go, oh, make this amount of calls. Who cares if you don't talk to anyone? That's the way I look at it, right? So we look at, at calls to pre-screens for an opportunity to go, okay, your ratio is way higher than someone else. What's our approach here? How many times are we touching them? What's our message look like? How can we be more consistent in looking at that data? Then it's pre-screens to submittals. So like that eight to one example, some people might do four to one, some people might be nine to one. But if you're getting eight to one, which isn't that difficult, then you're probably targeting the right people and getting the right people over the fence, depending on how good you are on the phone. How, how much would be a call to pre-screen? That number is one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about is what's changed. So it used to be 35 calls to talk to eight people. Now it's about 110. Wow. So what do you mean over the past year or since you started in 2009? Yeah, probably the last 10 years, it's slowly gotten more and more, but we, we track all of that. And a lot of that's just the noise for any sales job. Now there's, in my opinion, let's take our industry. There's all this technology that everyone now relies on and I have to have this, and I have to have this. Bottom line production has not gone up even before LinkedIn came out. If you talk to anyone that's been around a long time and even those that have been around a lot longer than me, if you look at per desk, bottom line production's not gone up. The difference is if I did a niche search 10 years ago, I might find 10 candidates by actually cold calling into you know a company trying to get transferred to a landline, not knowing if it's a male or female or what their background is. That's a cold call. Nobody, in my opinion, makes a cold call nowadays. You're literally looking at their resume. So a lot of people, when that was 10 cans I might've got, now you can get 102 minutes as far as leads go. Mm-hmm. And it's created, I don't mean this disrespectfully to anyone, but laziness. So, oh, cool. I'm just going to spam 100 emails or in-mails to all those people. And whoever responds is the best candidate. Typically, they're probably not. Because mm-hmm. right? the best candidate's not sitting around waiting for a recruiter to hit them up all day long. So... Different little methodology there, but numbers-wise, again, pre-screen to submittals, we look at that, and then submittals to first round. This is where I think it starts getting really important. I think the most important matrix for perm placement is your first round to second round interview ratio. Anything else before that was an absolute waste of your time. So going back to the secret sauce, the right amount of candidates and the right amount of time that'll get and take the job. If you're doing that, you're pushing things forward. Then it's, you know, we look at how many, because some of our process could be 15 steps, presentations, et cetera. So offers to accepted offers, start dates, and then ultimately your billings. And then we really do look at attrition because part of the value of headhunting is you're going to lower someone's attrition. If you pull a truly passive K out of a job they're happy and doing well at, and then make a move over to your client, you're not going to have a problem with guarantee periods. If you're getting someone that's actively looking, there's so many risks where, oh, they're actually looking, they're actually interviewing through other companies and they don't tell you that and they take some other offer. Or they take your offer at your client, even worse, and a month later, that offer they really wanted comes in and they quit, mm-hmm. right? So we really try to pride ourselves in that division on on a very, very low attrition rate. We 
rarely lose anyone under a guarantee period. In fact, I'll extend my guarantee periods with the belief, like we want to do right by the client. If you're placing the right people and you believe in that attrition ratio, it's much, much better. Makes sense. So submission to first round and then first round to second round, what's the, what's the target number? And then the same for the offer, like what's the uh, offer acceptance rate that you, that you aim for and that you see the probably different numbers. Sure. In our search division, you know, there's some variables. If the brand new client in that new search, you're going to submit a little bit more cans because there's that molding out period. But I always laugh and clients are like, well, the last firm sent me 15 people. I'm like, great. So you spent 15 hours interviewing the wrong people. What I need from you is five minutes twice a week, complete transparency with the hiring manager. I need to understand the likes and the dislikes, which only allows us to serve you better versus shooting arrows in the dark and spinning your wheels. Mm -hmm. Right. So overall, though, on average, five submittals a week sounds low and that's per search. Right. So usually we'll tell a client we're going to get you five candidates in five to seven business days. Often if they're passive, we got to wait for an updated resume. We're looking for at least an 80% some middle to first round interview that actually happens, right? So if you've done your job, you should be able to hit that. First to second round, 75%. And we want to move into an offer at any time. Now clients will make the mistake of hyper-focusing and putting all their eggs in the one candidate's basket, especially the last couple of years. I'm sure everyone saw I counter offers at the highest rate I've ever seen. Of course, we have a talk track. I tell every candidate's career suicide to take a counter offer. You're getting a Band-Aid or you're getting a preemptive promotion. And if that company ever needs to cut back, guess who's going to be gone first? It's going to be you. As far as offers to accepted, we generally work a pretty hard verbal offer before we're going to get them a written offer. To serve both the client and the candidate, we don't want a bunch of back and forth and that have it not work or we think that person's going to accept it and we don't. If you haven't agreed upon numbers, benefits, and all those other things before the written offer goes out, there's a much smaller chance they're going to actually sign that offer and actually start. So we have a whole checklist towards the end of the process. Counteroffer talk, start date talk, benefits, all those things have to come in play and you have to be transparent where I think a lot of folks in our industry kind of do the cross the fingers thing. Like, oh, it seems like it's going to work out. They like each other. But then you find out last minute, oh, they need them in the office and they actually live 50 minutes away and their current job, they're only five minutes away. Mm -hmm. Even if they went through the interview process, when push comes to shove, they're probably not going to take that offer. You have to address that very early on in the process. Okay, nice. And then we, so we, we get a very clear view on the pipeline, the amount of work. You mentioned that it's five submissions per week per role, per search. How many searches do a single person manage at the same time? In parallel? Usually, depending on where their pipeline's at, I know many will disagree with this, but again, it's quality over quantity. If you've done your job in taking that search, you'd rather work on less and fill more. That's kind of my attitude. So it's really five submissions overall, but you got to keep the secret sauce in mind. It, to get a search to move forward, my belief is you have to have five and at least four moving past the, the first round interview to optimize to move on to the next search. But if you take on three searches on a Monday and you know you need five, in our model, you're not going to be able to get 15 gains that week. You'd have to be a rock star working 24-7 to get the quality that we're looking for for a client. But if we reverse engineer those numbers, if you take one quarter as an example, 12 weeks, it takes you know two to three months to build a pipeline in this business, right? Close ratios become really important on those searches. So if we intake a search we're target at our best 75% of a close ratio. I think the industry norm for contingent firm placements is about 8 to 10%. So again, quality over quantity. 
how those numbers break out. So if you're submitting five cans a week and getting that 75% submittal to first round ratio, and you have a three month pipeline per se, that's 12 weeks and a quarter. You filled, fill meaning you have enough people in process, you can go to the next search. You do that over 12 weeks, three month pipeline, you filled a search every single week. Now, filling just means you've got enough in play, right? So then it's, did you actually get a signed offer for that search? So we look at close ratios. If it's 75% over a three month pipeline in that model, you're getting nine hires in that quarter. If you drop that to just 50% or half the searches you work on, that's only six. And if your average fees are, let's say, twenty-seven dollars to $30,000, that's a significant difference in your year, right? Or even going to the front end of the numbers taught to me early on by a mentor, if we're targeting eight new conversations for a search daily with candidates versus six, the difference there, six to eight, is an extra day of work in your week, an extra week in your month, an extra quarter in your year of production. And if you're a biller that's getting two, three hires or the nine a quarter, that's a significant amount of income you're leaving on the table. And you're not serving the client as well, building a brand, getting repeat business, et cetera. Yeah, there's even like, there's even positive effects to the more clients you get, the more clients you get and the more placements you make, the more people you meet as well. Yep. Okay, cool. Nice. And the fee that you charge, I guess there's a retainer, but there's some part of a contingency kind of a success fee on the, on the entire fee, right? Yep. We typically work contingent. I've always been kind of a prove a guy, let's compete and we'll win. But you know, what's unique about our search division, we, at our best, we're 75% close ratio. Um, we generally work exclusive. We work C-level on down, unlike a lot of folks that try to go through the bottom by finding a job posting, finding an MPCK, and hoping we get an agreement and not knowing if there's eight other firms on it. And it's pretty much mandatory we work with the hiring manager for a multitude of reasons um, versus going through the telephone game. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's 75%. 75% closing is huge on just a contingency fee. Congrats. Yeah, and it's... Well, our, our average contract is, is minimum 25%, right? And if they don't see the value in that and we haven't done a good job pitching the value, even with a new client, probably not worth our time. Something you have to explain to clients all the time if someone else is willing to do 15 or 20%. There's a whole talk tracker on that, but you, you want to be authentic and truthful with it. But yeah, that that's kind of the basics that can lead to someone being a big biller. And that the one that sticks out to me the most, again, going back to what's in your control, not focus on, I'm going to close this many deals. But if you focus on just those two extra conversations a day, that's nine extra hires in a year by talking to two more people a day. And if your average fees are say $30,000 and you're getting, you know, whatever it is, depending on your model, 30 to 60% commission on that, it's a huge amount of income you're leaving on the table. Yeah. About the price and the value, we're going to have a, a guy named John Brooks on the podcast soon. And he's doing consulting for staffing agency about pricing and not so much pricing, like how do you pick the right price, but how, also how do you explain value? And you get to realize that some things are very expensive to you and not very valuable to the clients. And some things are very cheap to you and very valuable to the clients. So you have to find the right balance and provide as much value as possible for the same amount of, uh, so it's going to be probably two weeks after this episode. So we'll say stay tuned for the next episode. Great. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris, for all this transparency. We, that's, I like how we impact everything. We have a very clear view. That's transparency that we rarely have. And as I discussed, as we discussed, especially in the agency world, there is a lot of secrecy. So I really appreciate your sharing all these numbers. 
if we go maybe to more of the coaching learnings that you have, like somebody who's joining Artemis today, what do they learn in the first month? What, what do you want to say to them and try and distill those learnings in the remaining like two, three minutes that we have? So just this is the ending is really packed with, uh, with advice as well. Yeah, you know, for our search division in particular, it's really hard to get someone from the industry to make a transition from the the standard kind of recruiting to the more consultative approach. In sales, there's transactional approach, which in my opinion, our industry is kind of recruiting. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you have headhunting, which is the consultative approach, both on the client and the candidate side. So that's something for that division I want to uncover first and see if they see the value of relationships. And, you know, it's essentially kind of also if you can do it working smart, not hard right? Like if you build the same amount, but you have to only close 20% of your searches versus 75, you're not working as smart as you probably could be. So a lot of it's qualifying on that. That's important to make sure they get that. Also, when I'm interviewing now, because I've made those mistakes, treating it for a client, one thing I look for, same thing I would tell a candidate for any client, arguably one of the most important things is likability in an interview, right? No matter if you're the perfect fit or not, sometimes depending on the role, if it's a role where you're just behind a computer working remote, not that big of a deal. How does likability come about? So I'm, I think it's vulnerability and humanizing yourself. So I'm looking for people that will do that because they're also going to fit into our company culturally. They're going to be the ones that come for help if they need help. They're going to be the ones that are the first ones to tell you when they made a mistake versus you uncovering it. They'll be the first ones to treat the client the right way. So I'm looking for people, you know, classic company period where companies put make money first, then the client, then the, the employee as they would call it. I saw a guy speak years ago, a very senior executive here locally, and it just stuck with me. And you put your people first, which goes to our purpose. They're going to put the client first. And if they do that, it might take a little bit longer, but you're making sustainable money in a relationship-based business where you can have fun and enjoy what you're doing versus dealing with the more transactional nature where you work on 30 searches to put one or two and compete against five other firms. Mm -hmm. So it's really looking for that. And and then it's also energy, it's drive, it's the consultative approach. And if they're from the industry, I'll throw out examples to see if they're doing some of the, maybe what I consider unethical things, changing resumes around fluffing candidates. So like when we submit a candidate, my rules are no assumptions. And when you see a lot of the submittals out there, we'll be like, best candidate ever, he's awesome, perfect fit, you're gonna love him, but no substance. So if we think they're a 10 out of 10, we're going to position them as an eight. We only speak in facts. So if you're doing a sales role, you don't say top salesperson. You say number three on a team of 100. That's a fact, right? But you also want to tell them what you would be concerned about because that's how you build trust with the client, which is the opposite of what people think. Same thing if a client calls me to have the bandwidth, I'll tell them and I'll go, listen, we're not in a place to be able to do the normal work we would on this project, but I'll actually refer you another firm that we know and trust that will probably be able to get this done for you. And you know what they usually will say? Okay, we'd love to work with you because they're not used to that. <laughs> so when you have the bandwidth, let me know. So looking for people that value a long-term relationship versus I need to close this deal right now. Yeah, well, good ending parting words. I really like the part about uh, talk numbers and facts and not opinions or adjectives. The opposite is true when you talk to the candidates. It's not like a, this is a super exciting opportunity for... Uh, the best company, they're disrupting their industry. No, no, it's like they raise that amount of money. They're doing this. They're doing that revenue. They're growing quarter on quarter. And like, I like this a lot as well. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. I learned a ton today. So I, I'm pretty sure people listening to this will learn a ton as well. Thanks a lot for the transparency. And we'll um, keep an eye out for you because uh, I know you'll be putting out more content 
on LinkedIn. So we'll check you on LinkedIn, Chris Ralph, uh, R-E-L-T-H. And of course, your name will be in the name of the, uh, of the episode. So we'll make sure to follow you. Thanks, Chris. Perfect. Thanks, Robin. Take care. Hey there, this is Robin. Most of our listeners come from word of mouth. So thanks a lot for your support. And if you enjoy their players, please keep on sharing it with your team and friends. Stay tuned for the next episode. And if you can't wait, follow me on LinkedIn for more content on recruiting. Talk to you next week.